Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. What kind of programs does this school have? How are the test scores? How many kids do a classroom? Homes.com knows these are all things you ask when you're home shopping as a parent. That's why each listing on Homes.com includes extensive reports on local schools, including photos, parent reviews, test scores, student-teacher ratio, school rankings, and more. The information is from multiple trusted sources and curated by Homes.com's dedicated in-house research team. It's also you can make the right decision for your family. Homes.com. We've done your homework. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing from iHeartRadio. It's officially summer, and that means it's time for our tradition at Here's the Thing, where our staff shares their favorite episodes in our summer staff series. Next up is our producer, Zach McNeese. Thanks, Alec. Whether you're a casual movie fan or a true cinema junkie like me, the name Hans Zimmer is no doubt synonymous with some of the most loved and awarded films of the past 30 years. He's an artist whose work speaks for itself, so without further ado, here's Alec's conversation with Hans Zimmer. of a movie has a way of enriching a film's emotional journey. From the profound to the playful, it is often an unconscious part of why the feeling of a movie stays with us long after we leave the theater. My guest today is one of the all-time masters of film composition, Hans Zimmer. He scored more than 150 movies, including Gladiator, Hannibal, Sherlock Holmes, The Last Samurai, The Thin Red Line, and many, many more. Hans Zimmer's work has earned him an Academy Award for The Lion King, two Golden Globes, and countless more nominations. In 2005, Hans Zimmer began working with director Christopher Nolan. It's become one of the most celebrated partnerships in movie history. For Nolan, Zimmer has scored the Dark Knight trilogy, Interstellar, Dunkirk, and Inception, which features this song, Time. Hans Zimmer's work spans an eclectic range of feature films, television, and documentaries. 
I wanted to know whether his scoring process is different when he works on animated films. All directors are different from each other. But I once was invited to a dinner party, and at the end of the table sat Terence Malick and Werner Herzog. You know, everybody's talking at the long table, and then suddenly everybody stops talking, and it's just the two great artists chatting, and they're arguing about which cue in Lion King is better. You know, these two admirable auteurs are arguing about Lion King, <laughs> you know, about a kid's movie. So... The weird thing is, you know, I can talk to Terry Malick about animation and I can talk to Tom McGrath, our director on Boss Baby, about Thin Red Line. Right, so, right, 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 you know, right. and in, in one way or the other, it's sort of the same thing other than that you can get away with a lot more in animation, I find. You know, you and I, in a peculiar way, we give life to something that doesn't have life. I mean, it's, it's you know, the whole point about animation, especially now with CG, where things have gotten so refined and they can do such amazing things, but the one thing they can't do, they can't really truly breathe life into. Mm. And so ultimately, the, the only real performance is, is the actors and the musicians. And for instance, what we did on the last Lion King movie, you know, we did a remake, and I thought, when am I going to do a remake? And I thought... Everybody knows the tunes. Everybody in the orchestra knows the tunes. Every, all my musicians know the tunes. I'm going to spend a week pretending I'm recording little cues. And then the last two days, I'm literally going to make it about, okay, we're going to run the movie from the beginning to the end, and you're going to just hold on for dear life, and we're going to record the whole thing as a performance. Because I wanted to have that, you know, the thing that you get in a live performance, the thing you get in a theater. Genius mixed with fear and catastrophe. Well, we've had people talk to us and th they have careers in whatever, editing or, or what have you. And I'm curious, not in a relationship, let's say, with Nolan, where you've made a few films with him, or you made a couple with Nancy, and this is two boss babies and so forth. But on your maiden voyage with Nolan, does he send you the script and you start to get in conversation with him, the type of score he wants, and you start to like riff little things before, or do you only really get concretized about it until you see cut footage? Let's talk about Chris and my working method. And we, I think we start off on the wrong foot right away because he wanted me to do Batman, and I kept saying, I don't want to do Batman. And finally he said, why don't you do Batman? I said, I know how to be the Dark Knight, but I don't know how to be Bruce Wayne. And he said, that's easy. Get a friend in to be the other character. You don't have to be schizophrenic. So I asked my friend James Newton Howard, who is you know, one of the most elegant composers in the world, to be light and let me be my Germanic darkness. And then I was working on something in Los Angeles. Chris was shooting in London. And he has a way of being very persuasive. He's going, well, yes, I got this shot of Batman standing on top of a building, and I don't quite know how to get him there because I don't want to tempt it, but is there something you can just, I mean, it doesn't have to be good. Just give me something that gets him up there. And so the first time um, James and I saw the movie, it had all our rotten little demos in it. But if you go to something like Inception, I remember Chris phoning me, and he's going, hey, do you want to come down to the beach with the kids? Is that how he puts it? He's stuck. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> when he needs the music for his movie, let's go yeah. down to the beach with the yeah. kids. Right. I think that's great. I'm going to try that. I'm going to call Spielberg and say, let's go down to the beach with the kids. 
But it worked. He realized that this idea of the different times and the different dream states was very complicated to an audience. And I said, you know, look, to a musician, it's the easiest thing because that's what we do all the time. You know, you have a bar and you divide it into four quarter notes and you could divide that time of the four quarter notes into eight eighths notes, etc. And you just keep dividing down and, and, and play. You're always playing with time. So I think at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if the audience never gets the intellectual conceit of the movie. But just think of me like a river and the audience is on a little boat and I take you downstream with the story. And sometimes it's going to get a little rocky and sometimes it's going to get a little boring, but you sort of know you can trust the river to take you on this journey and take you to the end. So Chris loved that. And we do think very similarly. I mean, I remember him phoning me from Iceland. So I hadn't seen any footage, right? I just about read the script. Uh, he phoned me from Iceland. He's explaining the scene, which is, and then you have to hit this shot, and then this is this, and this is the most important scene in the movie. Our lead character is basically seeing his whole family through the years, and he's starting to cry at a certain moment. You know, it had to be poignant. And I finally said to Chris, Chris, I, I don't think I can just do this. I don't think I can wing it without some footage. And I remember all these cuts in my head. And he says, our sense of time, our sense of aesthetic seems to be very similar. Just write it, send it to me. If it doesn't work, I'll send you the picture. Well, unfortunately, it worked. I, I, I phoned him. I said, how, how is it? And he goes, well, it's within two frames, but I can go and adjust that. So then he finishes shooting and I'm going, okay, show me the movie. He's going, Mm, you know, it's going really rather well. You know, you imagining my movie and writing freely. At which point I started to just send him pieces of music without telling him what they were for. I wouldn't write anything on them. I just send him music. But I very strongly, having read the script, knew what they were for. And I was praying and hoping there's a shot in there where Marion Cotillard is on a, on a ledge and her shoe drops just so. And I was so hoping that this piece I sent for him was going to end up in that spot. And then months down the road, when I first saw it, there it was. And he absolutely got it. So we have this language without words. Mm -hmm. Because I, I think what is really important with music is that, to me, it's an autonomous language. I am speaking to you in English, which obviously is not my mother tongue, as you might detect from the horrible accent. But if I were to speak to you in a couple of chords, I feel on safer ground and I feel more articulate. So that's how Chris and I kept working. We kept coming up with crazy, you know, we did a list, for instance, for Interstellar of what are the things we haven't done, you know, and, and we would cross off, oh, big drums, well, I did that one, uh, big horns, oh, we did that one. And then Chris said, what about pipe organ? And that became that, you know, because as he said it, this is a movie about space and rockets and all that stuff. I mean, I saw the shape of the pipe organ and at the same time I saw the afterburner of rockets and I thought both are fabulous pieces of technology. Now with Nolan, do you feel that your task is to help them understand and help yourself understand what they want? Have you ever had conflicts with directors where you said, <laughs> I don't agree? 
How much truth would you like? Well, I mean, we're not. Uh, my rule on this show is I don't want to ruin my career. No, no, the, your, ca- your, your career can't be ruined. Yeah. What I'm asking is, are you there to perform what they want, or do you consult with them? The director has to trust his composer. And ultimately, the composer needs to go and buy into the director's vision. But music is indefensible. I can write you something and play it to you, and I I think it's the greatest fucking thing, and I I just answered every question you ever had about your character or whatever, and you don't get it, and it doesn't resonate. So there's no way I can sit there and explain to you why you should like it. It either resonates or it doesn't. That's number one. The other thing is... I like working with directors who spend a minimum of time talking to me about what music they want. Because as soon as they start talking to me about what music they want, my mind goes off into that thing of going, my job is to do something that they can't even imagine. My job is to knock their socks off. My job is to do something that is so beyond anything that they could do because otherwise they do it themselves. And, and you know, and, and it makes me rather redundant or it makes me a musical secretary. Do you think that someone, uh, to use an, you know, a more celebrated example, because everybody knows the story about Alex North composition for Space Odyssey. Yeah. Do you think that someone like Kubrick uh, lunged in the direction of the classical repertoire because he knew what the music was. He didn't have to wait for somebody to write it. There it is, extant. It's real. I know I want, you know, von Karajan with the with the Vienna and this and that. Just play the Blue Danube. And he doesn't have to rely on anybody. Do you find that there are some directors who they, they just don't want to give that control? Well, well, it's not just that. You know, I mean, first of all, I should let you know that Stanley Kubrick was the first director that ever fired me. What film? Um, Full Metal Jacket. And and Vivian, his daughter, took over. But but it became this weird, strange thing. So I was really, I mean, I was maybe 18, 19. But as soon as I was fired, in other words, because I didn't know how to do what he wanted me to do. Because Stanley Kubrick knew everything. He had studied drumming with Gene Krupa. He just wanted me to be his musical secretary. And I'm not very good at that. Take dictation, yeah. Absolutely, take dictation. I mean, I would get these tapes sent, drumming with 10 fingers on his tabletop, and go, well, get a drummer to do exactly that. And, you know, so that didn't work. But then, once I was officially fired... I would get these phone calls where he would go, I think Vivian's in a bit of trouble. Can you go up there and see if she's all right? Or he'd go, what do you think of Dolby Stereo? I'm 18 years old. You know, I have no idea. I'm talking to Stanley Kubrick. How did you end up, I mean, you're 18 years old. How does an 18-year-old Hans Zimmer wind up within 50 miles of Stanley Kubrick? How did that happen? Anton First, his designer, who knew me. They were shooting for Metal Jacket in in the Docklands of London. And I knew Vivian, who then took over. And so I was really helping Vivian in a sudden. And then years later, I ran into Vivian, and and I was just on my way to London. She said, oh, you really should go and see Dad. I'm going, why would I go and see him? (laughs) And she goes, no, 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 he's always talking about you. Whenever a movie comes on television that you did, he's always saying, I found him. I was the first one who gave... He forgets the other part. But, you know, I was really busy, and I had to go down to Australia from London. So I didn't go and see him. Because I thought that Stanley Kubrick is beyond, he's immortal. 
you know, because he was Stanley Kubrick. Sure. And I get to Australia, I get to Sydney, and the guy who's picking me up from the airport coincidentally was a chap who I'd, who I'd met on Full Metal Jacket, and he's got a really sad face. And I realized that, you know, Stanley had died, which was inconceivable to me. Sure. And, and, and I learned, don't say no if somebody says, hey, come on over. Interesting. You know, you come over. And I learned a lot from him. I learned vast things from him, you know. This is music from the film Chappie. Hans Zimmer discovered his musical talent very early in life. Another one of our guests who took music seriously at a very young age as classical pianist Long Long. He was a musical prodigy, winning his first competition when he was five. Long Long and I spoke before a live audience in New York City in 2019. He talked about his father's skepticism of playing in competitions. He discouraged me to do competitions, and I was like, wow, really? Did he say why? Yeah, he said that you're too crazy about being number one and you're not really focused on what you should be, you know, learning the repertoire. And to, he said, do you want to become a great musician or you want to just win a prize? prize winner? And I said, oh, I said, is that not the same? I said, well, what's the difference? I said, if I don't win a prize, how am I going to become a great musician? Hear the rest of my conversation with celebrated pianist Long Long at herestething.org. After the break, Hans Zimmer talks about how he went from playing dingy clubs around England and making coffee for composer Stanley Myers to realizing what he wanted to do for the rest of his life. If you're enjoying this conversation, tell a friend and be sure to follow Here's the Thing on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. 
If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash iHeart. That's LifeLock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. This piece is from the film 12 Years a Slave. Hans Zimmer was born in Frankfurt, Germany. He's largely self-taught and even as a child understood a strong connection between music and mood. Well, my father died when I was six, and I'd already played the piano, and I enjoyed playing the piano. But my father died, and I realized the only thing that made my mother happy, that put a smile on her face, was when I played the piano. So I sort of took on that burden, which then, of course, backfired, because at school I was appalling in everything other than playing music. I got thrown out of nine schools, ultimately. I ended up in school in England, a fabulous school called Hertwood House. You know, it was a choice to go back to Germany or hang out in swinging London. So by the time of 18, I was in the back of a Ford Transit van going up and down the M1, playing every working men's club in every shitty pub. It's the 80s. It was crazy. It was amazing. There was a company called Working Title that were making music videos. And one day, Channel 4, a new television station came about, and Working Title decided, since we don't know how to make movies, that's okay. They don't really know that, but we'll do something called My Beautiful Laundrette. Mm-hmm which was a young Daniel Day-Lewis, and it was an extraordinary anti-Thatcherite, gay, cross-everything, you know, amazingly, sort of just mind-blowing, where nobody saw it coming, and Daniel kisses this Indian boy. Mm-hmm. And you could feel the jaws of the audience hitting the floor, mm-hmm. and I loved it. <laughs> so Kubrick and that introduction through... Full Metal when you're 18 years old. Had you worked on any films or had you been close to any film sets or studios before that? Yes. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. I had a mentor, Stanley Myers, the the man who wrote the music for The Deer Hunter. Brilliant, brilliant man. And so Stanley had this coffee machine. He loved his Italian espresso. He had bought an unbelievably complicated coffee machine. And so my job was to work the coffee machine and Stanley would show me how to write for orchestra. And the first day was Stanley Myers and Nicholas Rogue sitting there looking at a scene in the morning. I was making coffee and they're both going, we have no idea what to do. 
and by the evening they'd come up with a mind-blowing, beautiful solution, musical solution. And I realized that this idea of that you have nothing and that you make something out of nothing and that it's just a conversation and you just you just breathe the picture in and turn it into notes. That was a fantastic adventure. And then Stanley and I had a little studio, and Stanley was very good friends with the producer, Jeremy Thomas, who phoned me up one day and said, would I mind coming in on Saturday? Because he had uh, Riti Sakamoto and Bernardo Bertolucci coming in to have a look at what Riti had done on The Last Emperor. And would I just go and run the tape machines for them? So they piled into my little studio, and it turned out that there was a profound lack of communication. And Bertolucci had recut The Last Emperor as, in, as flashback, while Sakamoto had scored the previous version, which was all in chronological order. And the other thing was, Sakamoto's idea was that he was going to play Bernardo the stuff, have his friend Koji recorded at Abbey Road, and he was gone because he had a tour starting the following day. And so nothing fit. So David Byrne from The Talking mm -hmm. Heads was the other composer, and Kong Su, who was a Chinese composer but had studied in Berlin, was another composer on it. So the Chinese composer could only speak German, so I was useful in this case. And Jeremy said, can you just go up to Abbey Road and just sort of sort this out, you know, record the orchestra. And I had no idea what 4M, you know, 51, whatever, something that was in real 4 was now in real 2, but I'd never heard it, and I didn't even know what scene it was supposed to go. And and Bernardo would go, why is it getting quiet in the middle of a shot? And I'm, I'm like tap dancing furiously, coming up with excuses to sort of not put the blame on Ryuichi Sakamoto. It really wasn't his fault. So that was really my other... Introduction. Yeah, and it was like, these people are crazy. <laughs> these people are genuinely crazy. And there, and there was one day where Bernardo was working out at Pinewood, and there was uh, something had gotten... And things kept getting lost, or things kept not happening, or whatever. And he felt me up at my studio, and he goes, where are the Chinese death bells? I didn't know there were going to be Chinese death bells, nor did I even know that there is such a thing as Chinese death bells. So I said, well, okay, I'm really sorry. I'll come right over up with the Chinese death bells. So I made up something on a synthesizer because I thought, if I don't know what they sound like, he won't know what they sound like. And I came over, and as I got to Pinewood, Bernardo's walking up and down at the gates to the studio, and he's like, he's got his hands behind his back, and I get out of the car, and I'm saying, look, I'm really sorry. It wasn't my fault, by the way. It really wasn't. You know, but I wasn't going to blame anybody. I just went, fuck it, I'll do it. And Bernardo went, look, I'm really sorry I shouted at you. And he handed me a box of chocolates, and he said, look, even though I'm the director and I'm paying you, I realize that the seconds of your life are going by, and I should be more gracious. Wow. That taught me something. I mean, the more I worked within the film business at these early days, and mostly it was in Soho and mostly like working title, all our cutting rooms were either above a strip club or a pawn shop. And, you know, and I would run up the stairs with my little piece of music and sink it up to the picture and hold my breath because what if the director didn't like it, but at the same time, I realized it was all entertainment. And should it go wrong upstairs, maybe I could get a job downstairs at the pawn shop, you know? 
or the strip club for that matter. Oh, the strip club for that matter. Absolutely. And then Working Title offered me like the, the 20th movie or something like this that uh, it was about uh, the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa called A World Apart. I know World Barbara Apart. Barbara Hershey. Yeah. Beautiful, Beautiful film. I love Barbara Hershey. Beautiful film. Chris Mingus. So we're sitting at the Groucho Club and I'm, I'm going, so what's the budget? And Tim Bevan says, we're not telling you what the budget is. Your wife is pregnant and we know what you do. You take all the money that you're supposed to go and take home with you and you just spend it on making the movie sound good. So we're not telling you what the budget is this time. So you go and do the movie and it's going to be all right. So I did the movie and it turned out my, my daughter was born on the first day of working on the film. And they opened an account in her name and put the money in there. So, you know, whatever you say about the das things about filmmaking, the, you know, how cynical sure. you want to be, there are people who are genuinely have a heart. Gentlemen. Gentlemen. You know, the other thing which I think is so vital is Hollywood with all its cheapness and vulgarity, what have you. It's the last place on earth that commissions orchestral music on a daily basis. Wow. And if we don't have that, the orchestras will just die. At what point were you immersed in the classic Bernard Herrmann era of film scoring? Did you listen to a lot of film scores? And No. None. Not at all. I come from one of those snobby European families where we went to the opera once a week and we had no television because television was considered the end of culture as we know it. And I remember I snuck into the little local cinema where they were playing Once Upon a Time in the West. And it was just like Ennio Morricone, Sergio Leone, those shots. And I'm going, that's it. That's it. That's what I want to do. And there was nothing that could stop me from doing this. Did you feel at any point that you needed to study film itself in order to do your job better? No, I felt I needed to study mythology. I needed to study fairy tales. I needed to study psychology. I needed to read like crazy. And I needed to sit down and talk to as many DPs as I possibly could. Because if I was the ears, they were the eyes. Yeah. I was the guy who would never go home. I was always the kid who was still hanging around in the cutting room, you know, just badgering the editor, going, why, why, why are you doing that? Why are you doing this cut? And why? And how does this work? And, uh, 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 you know, talking to the DP, what colors are you going to use? What the tone of this film? Tell me what the color palette is going to be like. Knowing as we do now that, you know, I might watch The Crown in bed on my computer and my wife is asleep next to me and, and and then if it's gladiator you think let's just blow the fucking roof off this theater and let's just blow it out you know that's 40 feet wide 20 feet high is there a difference between scoring for tv and for film not uh, there should be there should be but i don't make a difference i just i just feel there's a right path if somebody has a compelling story, if Peter Morgan comes to me and he goes, I've given up on doing movies, I want to do The Crown. You take that very seriously. Mm -hmm. And Peter's vision is vast. And what a juggernaut that's been, boy. Oh, my God. Absolutely. I love Peter. I've known him. I've known Peter. I, I, I want to say I've known Peter all my life. Peter and I speak German. He speaks better German than I do. You know, we come from that working title camp. 
European cinema is really different. I mean, I came to Hollywood expecting it to be technologically far more advanced than Europe. And I expected it to be far more collaborative. And it, it wasn't. The composer worked alone and he had a ghostwriter who would never get a credit. You know, it's like a, a, an army of ghostwriters who never saw their names up in light. And I thought, how oh, are those poor bastards going to get their career? You know, Stanley Myers, my mentor, I mean, he gave me credit straight away. I mean, it wasn't a big deal. And we would all be in the room together. So I learned from Stephen Frears. I learned from Nick Rourke. I learned from John Schlesinger. I learned from Terry Malick. You did Pacific Heights. We did Pacific Heights. I auditioned for that movie. I remember I was involved. Uh, he did a movie, The Believers. Yes. That uh, Marty Sheen did, and I was I was going to do that movie. Ellen Barkin and I, I think, were pretty close to getting those jobs, and then the casting director cut our throats and got rid of us because they felt we were too young. I remember I was just overwhelmed with a passion to work with Schlesinger. What was he like? Same with me. Any director who, in the middle of scoring, says. I'm so sorry, but I have to take a few days off because I'm directing an opera in Salzburg. <laughs> is okay with me. Do you know what I mean? It's like at the end of all the scoring sessions, he made a list of all the quotes I, of classical music I'd used, which was, was great. It was a game. But again, knowing that writing music and performing music, what happens when you go and record it and you hear it and you go, it's not right? Well... One of the things is to be absolutely clear, we are making a recording. We're not doing a concert. You don't have the frise of a live performance going on. So I, I try to have a bit of that going on. For instance, I tell directors before I start working with them, and they all get it, I will not make a change during the scoring session in front of the orchestra. We'll take it off the stands, I'll go home, I'll rewrite it, whatever you want. But I will not do it in front of the orchestra because when the orchestra is playing, it's about a performance. Mm -hmm. And we don't want to stop and we don't want to bore them and we certainly don't want to show any insecurity. The lion taming and film composing seem to have a close link. You know, both can kill you. I mean, the director will eat your life and if it's not the director, there's a, there's a whole bunch of guys in the brass section who are just looking at you going, okay, kid. Let's see what happens. Let's see. You had some of that early on? Yeah, absolutely. And, really? and, and, wow. and now we're fine. Now I actually had the, one of the greatest compliments recently. There's a percussionist in London who's played on everything from, you know, Star Wars, plus all the classics. And I saw him the other day, and he goes, Hans, we were worried about you when you went to Hollywood because we thought you're just going to become one of those prats. But you know something? You came back, you're still one of us, you're still a complete muso bastard, and we love you for that. So I thought that was like the best compliment I could have. And it meant whatever we were doing was going to be okay, because I was still part of them. Now, when you see footage, does the performance ever motivate you? 100%. Really? What's an example of a performance by an actor in a film you did that really helped lift you to the level you wanted to go in terms of your score? Jack Nicholson in As Good As It Gets. Really? Didn't know what to do. I was really struggling. And finally I said to Jim Brooks, Jim, what, what are you doing at the weekend? Do you mind sitting on my couch and let me just look at Jack, look at what he's doing? I mean, there's a history. Before Jack started filming the movie, I was at his house 
going over, like, he's going to play the piano. He didn't want to play the piano. I'm going, it's easy. I can go and replace anything that's wrong. No. Jack didn't want to play the piano? Didn't want to play the piano. I think he just wanted to talk to Jim a bit. But so Jim's sitting there, and we just started to work out together what this character would be like. It's the way his legs moved, or it's just, just a little something in the shoulder. It's never something he says. It's body language. It's a ballet. And literally, it was, it was two days of just experimenting, Jim sitting there, and we worked the whole thing out. And so, you know, I totally understood what Jack was trying to do. Helen Hunt, she won the Oscar for I love that film. He did too. He did too. He did too. And, and what I love is there's an almost pugilistic quality to when he says his yes. lines, the woman, the, the legendary line when he's at the elevator, oh. and the woman says, how do you write those female, how do you write those women so well? I, I think of a man, and I take away reason and accountability. Right. What are the greatest lines in Hollywood history? There's another bit in it. At the end, when he doesn't know how to go and see the Helen Hunt character, and Greg Kinnear says to him, but you already have an advantage. You're already prepared to humiliate yourself. And... In a funny way, I've made that sort of my leitmotif of how I'm going to go and play a piece of music to a director or anybody for that matter. I'm sure, I'm sure that these examples have been, there might be none or certainly few and far between, but have you ever just pushed out your best effort and you thought, I can't save this movie? Yes, and, and being wrong at the same time, thinking, this is terrible. And then the audience loved it. You know, don't try to predict anything. That's a very good point. You know, to thy own self be true. I mean, look, you and I, we did a movie, Pearl Harbor. Yeah. There's a line in it. Girl and boy met 45 minutes ago in the story. And they're sitting next to each other. And she says to him, if I have one more night to live, I want to spend it with you. And I say to Michael, Bay. Michael, you got to get rid of that line. I learned from Ridley Scott. Ridley Scott always would say, sentimentality, that's unearned emotion. He's going, yeah, yeah, don't worry, I'll get rid of it. He never got rid of it. It's the favorite line in the movie (laughs) by teenage girls, you know? God. Hans Zimmer. This is To Every Captive Soul from the motion picture Hannibal. Turn, Hans Zimmer talks about how an invitation from musician Pharrell Williams helped him overcome stage fright. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. 
Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. It took 11 years to get to the sale. The NYX anniversary sale is on now at knix.com. Celebrate the intimate apparel company that has reinvented products for real life with one of NYX's biggest sales of the year. Get 30% off all leak-proof apparel from the number one leak-proof brand in North America, including period underwear, swimwear, activewear, and more. Millions of people have made the switch to NYX leak-proof underwear, and there's never been a better time for you to try. Save 30% on super comfortable, machine-washable, and great-looking underwear that's perfect for periods and light bladder leaks. Choose from a variety of colors, styles, and sizes, from extra small to 4XL. You can even match your leak-proof underwear with an incredibly supportive and comfortable NYX wireless bra. Don't miss this chance to stock up on your NYX favorites or try something new. It only happens once a year at NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com for the NYX anniversary sale. Hurry, the sale ends on Monday, May 13th. Go to NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com. I'm Alec Baldwin, and this is Here's the Thing. In 2016, Hans Zimmer did something he hadn't done in decades, played in front of an audience. The result was Hans Zimmer Live, an arena-style concert series which wouldn't have happened without encouragement from his friends. There was like a cabal ganging up on me. There was Pharrell Williams, Johnny Marr, and my friend Anne-Marie Simpson, great violinist, and they're all sitting here and they're going, you know, Hans, you can't hide behind a screen for the rest of your life. Sometimes it is your duty to look an audience in the eye, especially after you've done so much. I'm going, no, 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 it's a terrible idea. I think I should just stay in, in this room. I mean, and so this goes on and I keep saying no. And they get up and they're walking out of my room and right at the end, Pharrell turns around and he says, hey, I'm going to play the Grammys. Do you want to play guitar for me? And I thought, only an idiot would say no. Right. So it was his show. The Grammys were his show. I'm playing guitar. Through the whole performance, he kept his eyes on me, he, just to make sure that I was okay, that I was safe, which was such an act of kindness. And I was going, oh, it's not so bad. This is actually good fun. So I phoned, <laughs> I phoned my friend Harvey Goldsmith, who promoted the original Live Aid and everything yeah. else. I mean, he brought Springsteen to to England, etc. And I was saying, Harvey, if I did a concert, I mean, do you think anybody would come? And he goes, mm, Yeah, I think so. So in 2014, we did two nights in London at a rock and roll venue, and I thought. It was important, number one, it was important to be a rock and roll venue and it would be fun to pour an orchestra into it. Or we can go more extreme because then we went and did Coachella and I thought, oh, we have to do Coachella because we got to have an orchestra in the middle of the desert and a choir. And secondly, I want to change the way people perceive orchestras and choirs. 
Because I can understand that going to a classical concert, unless it's an amazing conductor, seeing a guy with his back to you all night while there's a whole bunch of guys and girls reading the paper is like a bad marriage on a Sunday morning. So I said to the orchestra, if I get rid of the conductor, I mean, we have enough technology. We can go and show things up on the conducting up on the screen. You know, it doesn't have to be in the sightline. You will have an autonomous sightline to the audience. Will that work? And they said, yeah, absolutely. We'll have, we'll have a go at it. And that basically became the basis of that tour and the idea of being surrounded by not only great orchestral players, but great rock and roll players, because great musicians are great musicians. Mm -hmm. You either move me or you don't move me. You know, it's interesting how when you write music, I want to tee this up with a story, which was I was haunted by the sequence in, in Cold Blood where Robert Blake is watching Scott Wilson have sex with the right. prostitute. Right. And he's sitting on the bed and then that transforms into his mother with a John and the father comes in. And it's this horribly painful, traumatic thing for the Robert Blake character. And he's sitting there with tears running down his eyes and the rain behind him and the window running down the window. And they play this Mexican ballad. And I drove myself to the brink of insanity trying to find out what the name of the song was, who the singer was, and of course who wrote it, and I couldn't take it anymore. So, you know, when you're with CAA as an agency, they can get you on the phone with anybody. So the next thing you know, I'm on the phone with Quincy. Right. I said, now this song in this thing, he said, yeah, yeah, man, Nina. The song's Nina, baby. That's the name of the song, Nina. And, 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 and I go, who wrote the song? And there's a pause, and he goes... I wrote it, baby. I wrote it. I mean, what you talking about? Exactly. What the, what the fuck right. are you talking about, man? I wrote the song. Like, I write all the songs. Did you feel that there were parts of your career where you had to learn to write music you thought you couldn't write, whether, you know, from the culture? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, I mean, I had this from Penny Marshall, where she comes to me and she goes, 40s, girls, baseball, League of Thrones. <laughs> I'm going... I know nothing about being a girl. I know nothing about the 40s. I don't know anything about jazz, you know? And she goes, don't worry about it. Just do it. And oh, yeah. And I say, I know nothing about baseball. She goes, when they hit it, that's good. <laughs> you know? That was basically my brief. It took me a while to figure out how I could solve this because I really don't know anything about jazz. You felt you didn't know anything about jazz? You weren't a jazz fan? Yes, but I didn't know how to do it. Got it. Got you it. Know? And I thought, well, hang on. Everybody's got like some crazy uncle that when drunk will play boogie boogie on the piano. Right. So I thought, well, I can be that guy playing boogie woogie on the piano and just orchestrate it and shove it in front of a bunch of really good players. Yeah. So that's how that score came about. But here's the thing. Penny was a huge influence. Interesting. Because she loved having a chat, especially between the hours of 3 a.m. and 7 a.m. in the morning. I had some chats with Penny. Right. Okay. <laughs> so, so since I was one of the few, yeah, I'm a musician, therefore I was up. And I would use those chats, for instance. I, I remember one. Penny, how do you make a good movie? She goes, that's easy. All you have to do is protect your star. And by that, I don't mean the actor. I mean your main character. Don't let him say anything that's out of character coming out of his mouth. Don't let him wear anything that's not in character. Don't have his hair be stupid. Because when you know what your main character is, then the rest of the story will group around it. And I thought, that makes perfect sense. You know? 
Now, what about with Ron Howard? I mean, the Frost-Nixon thing is obviously a very dry, very powdery kind of a drama. You know what I mean? Oh, man. That was a tough one. I mean, you know, Sheehan and Frank. I mean, Frank is just such a wonderful Malvolio-esque, you know, kind of presence in everything he right. does. It just drips with a kind of danger, you know. What did Ronnie tell you he wanted for that film? We all loved the play. And, you know, that's back to Peter Morgan and the Crown. I mean, that's a Peter Morgan thing. So ostensibly, we had a meeting every day for two weeks before he we went out shooting to talk about the songs, to make the songs to be the right thing for the era. And I don't think we actually got any songs in it. You know, I would go, well, if you give me this close-up, I can give you this piece of music, or I can do something like this, and da-da-da-da-da. You know, so for two weeks, we, we sort of worked out camera moves, and we worked out how to transform a play into a movie. Now, one of the junctures in which I intersected with your movie was a documentary series called Evidence of Revision. It's considered the Citizen Kane of uh, JFK conspiracy films. It's nine hours long, divided into five parts. I'm listening to this, and this music comes on. And I'm going, oh, man, this music is so fucking beautiful. And it's The Last Samurai. Now, he sampled a couple of your pieces for this thing. Hannibal... He plays to every captive soul. Oh, yes. There. And oh, my God, you just, the tears start rolling down your face. There's a big story involved with Tell that me. piece. Why it's worth making movies. To me. Ridley had just come back from Florence, I think, to finish shooting the movie. It's Sunday night, 11 o'clock in the evening at Fox in the cutting room. And it's Ridley, it's Pietro Scaglia, the editor, and me. And the picture on the avid is parked on a tear running down Clary Starling's face. And I say to him, to both of them, I say, well, she's crying because she's in love with him and she has to betray him now. And really goes, no, no, no. It's a tear of disgust. It's disgust at this monster. Yeah. When he has her up against the refrigerator? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Right. So this goes on. So, so it gets more and more heated, this conversation. And finally, we're standing, and three grown men at 11 o'clock at night on a Sunday are shouting at each other about the meaning of a tear on a woman's face. And I had one of those weird moments, you know, where the camera pulls back and I see us all, and I thought, what a great job. We are... <laughs> discussing Julianne Moore's crying. And, and I'm going, this is the most important thing to us at this moment. And that's what this piece is about. Because I said, okay, Riddy, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to write, th the whole score is going to be a romantic comedy. And he's going, okay, fine. All right, if you can pull that off, fine. Romantic comedy. So that is my big love theme. What's a movie of yours you watch where you sit there when it screens and you go, you know, it's not that bad, actually. It's pretty good. It really does work. Yeah, yeah I know. I'm binary. It's shit or it's not shit. I think they could all do with a bit of a do-over and improvement. <laughs> but I tell you, the opening to The Lion King, I mean, it was really important to me. I, I wanted that African voice, my friend Lebo, who I discovered at a car wash. He was a political refugee. He was working at a car wash. 
And I said, come and just come on, do this thing. And, you know, like the, like within the first notes, you know you're now not in Kansas anymore. What advice do you have for people who you're working with who are young people who want to... Because I'm assuming that actors can come and go. They have their halcyon period, writers, directors. But it seems like composers, when you hit it, you can stay there for a very long time. Your career has been a very long time now. And you've stayed at the top of this business for a very long time. What advice do you have for people who want to get into that part of the business? Just say yes. You know, like when Penny Marshall says, do you know, do a movie about baseball and swing? Go, yes, I know nothing about it. Just be honest. I know nothing about it. But it sounds interesting, right? You know? Well, I'll yeah, figure it out. Cool, yes. I remember being on the phone with Ron. Just out of courtesy, right at the end, I thought I should say, well, what are you working on? And he said, The Da Vinci Code. And I'm going, oh, my God. It's like run-on monologue. It's totally uncinematic. How can you? I mean, how are you going to do that? And it's a phenomena. How are you going to deal with the phenomena? And he goes, yeah, I know. And 10 minutes later, my agent phones me and goes, what, what did you say to Ron? Oh, I'm sorry. I know he's setting off on this journey, and I just probably really, like, you know, made it even worse for him. He goes, no, 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 he wants you to do the film. He wants you to solve it for him. You know, and it gave me a year of being able to immerse myself in art and in literature mm. and to hang out at the Louvre at night, you know. This is why people say to me, why am I on the board of the Philharmonic? I said, the movies often disappoint me. The theater sometimes disappoint me. The symphony never disappoints me. I've, I, when now I go see the New York Philharmonic play, I, I'm never disappointed. Absolutely. Your music, is there a joint ownership of that movie and the publishing rights and so forth for the soundtrack album and so forth? Do you have some control or does the studio, is it a buyout and they own it? They own it, but there's a law that says you are allowed to perform anything you want to perform, right? So I think it would be heinous to not be able to own my life. Wow. You know, because that's really what it is, mm. isn't it? I mean, you know, that thing Bernardo said to me, you know, as the seconds of life are ticking away, we are creating these things, you know? And an actor turned to me once. He said to me, you're going to go back to your trailer? I said, yeah. He goes, why do you go to your trailer? He said, the set's where you want to be, even when you're not shooting. He said, pull up a chair. He goes, just be a part of it. Absolutely. Yeah. Just watch them shoot. And as I've gotten older, when I read a script, I say to myself, could I stay on the set during the entire shooting process of this movie and just be a witness and watch them do this movie? Is it, do I love it that much? And that's become a metric for me, actually. And I spend right. far more time on the set now than I used to. I never go to my trailer anymore. It's too boring. I think my whole career is based on, I would always hang around and be the guy asking the stupid questions, you know, not be afraid to, well, why are you doing it like that? You know, tell me, explain this part to me or whatever. You know, everything informs everything. But you nailed it when you said, this is our lives. We spent our lives doing this. It is our lives. And that's what Pharrell and Johnny Marr were so right about, that I should stop hiding, that I should do things in real time. Be on a stage. If I'm going to have a pratfall, yes, if I go hello Oslo in Stockholm, they will forgive me. Let me just finish by saying this. 
as you're scoring the sequel to Boss Baby, please make me look funny, make me look smart, make me look powerful, okay? When you're writing the music, just have that in mind if you don't mind. Make me look powerful. We have, we, not only have we fulfilled that brief, but you know, <laughs> you getting away with that line, um, I have a beautiful voice. I mean, <laughs> j just that and pausing, just to have your voice, yes. the, the, just let it lay there and let them all be enthralled. Well, listen, thank you. You're one of the greats, man. I mean, your movie scores are just, I mean, these people that you work with, they're lucky to have you, boy. What a difference you make. It has been a pleasure. Composer Hans Zimmer. This is from the motion picture, The Last Samurai. I'm Alec Baldwin, and this is Here's the Thing from iHeart Radio. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA.